Who came in a car to church today? Most people. I walked. It was a long walk. So did Trudy. We both walked. Now, most people come in cars to church because you live further away. And when you come in cars, you just know that, well, the rules of the road are important. Who has a, pro- who has a problem with roundabouts? I have a problem with a roundabout down here. Uh, and I, I, I go down the roundabout, and particularly if I'm a four-wheel drive, uh, it's less of a problem. But anyway, I come to the roundabout, and people think um, uh, you stop, you let cars go because they're going in front of you, which is right. Anyone that's on the roundabout, you've got to give way to. So you stop. And then other cars think they'll just come racing up at higher speed in front of you. Uh, they don't like it when you suddenly put the nose of your four-wheel drive in front of them. They realise, well, they're going. Uh, in fact, you know, if, you, if, if, you, if a car's coming and you're stopped and you put your nose out, they've actually got to give way to you because as soon as your wheels are on the roundabout, they've got to give way. But not many people sort of want to do that. They think, oh, I'll just force my way through. And you see sometimes driving things, don't you, that you say, well, doesn't that person understand? Don't they realise uh, what's all going on? Today we're looking at the whole thing between theory and practice, between knowledge and experience. Colossians is going to look at that. But it's vital in life because you can learn to drive in paddocks and out the back here and on farms and on the back roads when you shouldn't. You can learn to drive and think you've got it all and uh, you can drive on the road. But if you don't know the road rules, you're going to be a danger to yourself and others. And if you, Even if you know them and don't keep them, you're going to be a danger eventually. People get away with it, but not always. And so there needs to be a balance between knowing things and doing them and then how you live and how you experience life. The two have got to go together. If they don't go together, it's a disaster happening if you're driving a car and it will be a disaster in life also. Paul's going to talk about that. And he's going to raise that because he's got a group of people saying it's all about experience. It's all about how it feels and what you're getting out of it and your mind doesn't so much, just experience. And he's, he's going to put that in the right perspective for all of us because that's still a place today. A lot of people are saying that. People are saying both extremes. People are saying, no, it's all about you know, learning and knowing and, and academic study and stuff, but you know, don't worry about how much they've all got to have in your head. Others are saying, no, no, it's all about living it out, experiencing it. It doesn't really have to have a lot of knowledge. No, Paul says you need both. He's going to explain why. First of all, he talks about the place of knowledge and experience in Christian lives. He said the starting point he looks at is in our heart and our minds, our heart, our emotions, our minds, our thinking. And he's going to say in verse 2 of Colossians chapter 2, My purpose is they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. So encouraged in their, in their heart, in their emotions, and united in their love, in their actions towards other people. Again, another emotion. So they may have full riches of complete understanding. Understanding is knowledge in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. He's saying about, in the end, it's all about Christ. It's about Christ being in all and all. He said that through chapter 1. He'll say it through chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. We're going to see in these four chapters of this letter, just Christ is mentioned so much over and over and over. In Christ, with Christ, about Christ. And he's saying our emotions and our thinking, both of those things inside of us, need to be centred around Christ, captivated by Christ. Christ is the treasure of those things, of our emotion and our mind. Look at verse 3. In whom are hidden all Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
treasure, something that is of high value, something that's going to give us a perspective on life that's worth having, not worth having, valuable to have, something that's important to have, and it's all found in Christ. Having Christ in our thinking at the centre of what we're going to do, by which we look at the world, that's going to be a treasure. The Gnostics are saying at the time, no, we've got the treasure. You know, we've got it. You don't need Christ. You just do what we tell you to do and you'll be right. He's picking up what they're saying and challenging that. He says in verse 5 uh, that he delights in how orderly they are and how firm they are in their faith. If you're following Jesus Christ, you're going to be orderly and firm because you're focused on Christ. He's constant. If you focus on your emotions and how the world feels to you and, and what you're getting out of it, it's going to be up and down like a yo-yo. No firmness, no order at all. But in Christ there is order, there is firmness, because he's the focus, he's unchanging. Applying our knowledge to life and standing firm in a disciplined way in Jesus against all the false teaching that's saying, do this, do that. I mean, how many self-help books do you get? They keep coming all the time, don't they? How many diets are there? One minute you've been told this is bad for you, next minute you're told this is good for you. It's just all over the place. What do you do? Let's just eat wisely and eat a good balanced diet. Look at verse 6. So all this teaching is going, all this wishy-washy stuff coming and going. He says, so then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Continue to rely on him. You know, our motto, living lives for Jesus, wasn't just picked out of the air. It just comes out of what the, the Bible says over and over and over, living for Jesus. And the idea of being rooted and built up, the, a plant that's rooted draws all its nourishment, all its life from its roots and what the what its roots are in, the pot or soil. We're rooted in Christ. We draw all our life, our nourishment, everything from Christ. We rely upon him totally. We're built on him. We're, he's the foundation for our life. He's our stability and our strength. Strengthening faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. And this idea of having our minds recognising Christ, recognising who he is and what he's done for us, we're going to overflow with thankfulness. It's going to affect our emotions in a positive way that we just want to celebrate and thank Jesus Christ for who he is and what he's done. Relationship is the focus here. I like what Michael Williamson said on our church camp. He talked about the heart and mind working together. And his illustration was going to church he said, because he's a minister like me, on Sundays he has to get ready for church, do his sermon, take services over and over and over. His wife is at home, she's getting the children ready. And getting ready isn't just the clothes and giving them food. He made the point getting the children ready was getting their minds ready, helping them to prepare what's going to happen at church, what church is for, what people are going to say and do, what, why, how we relate to people is important. Getting their heads around... They're going to meet with God and they meet with God's people and how that's going to affect them and how they're to respond. So the idea of having your, your emotions and, or your mind ready so you respond in a right emotional way. Putting your mind into gear to make the right heart response was what he was saying. And Paul's saying if we've got our mind into gear, if we're understanding Jesus Christ and who he is to us and what he's done for us, then we will have an overflowing thankfulness as our response to him. Our mind and our heart response, overflowing thankfulness. Then Paul's saying, beware of it. It may sound really good, but just beware of it. Because 
there's people out there who are trying to deceive you in verse 4 with fine-sounding arguments. They sound really good. See, the false teachers were saying that uh, if you want to grow as a Christian, you need to have certain rules and certain conditions of behavior. It all sounds really good and appealing to them and to us today because it means that you can earn your way to heaven. You can earn your salvation. You can have a part of it. You can have some measure of independence, and that's always attractive in every generation to every person. And verse 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. Taken captive. Control, become a slave to. And it's appealing to people's emotions, as saying, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than Christ, appealing to things that have been done before, uh, things that um, people enjoy doing or get something from or, or feel good about it. I'm the sort of person that I love to see a result. I mean, I do lots of things with people and I don't see things. I love to go out and mow the grass. I see the result. We dig the garden. I see the result. Or wash the car. I see the result. And we can all be like that sometimes. Or sorry, maybe not. I'm like that. Some of us can be like that. And so for the Christian here, the Gnostics are appealing to that, saying, look, you want to do something, go and do this particular activity and that'll be good and you'll be a Christian. Or go and do that. Or go and do that. And it's all about doing things. Not why you're doing it, not where Christ is. It's all about doing things. We could say about the Hannah Park Carols, let's go and do that as an activity. It'll be a good thing for us. But why are we doing it? Or why are we doing church? Or why are we doing SRE? Or why are we doing kids' church? We're not just doing things for the sake of doing it. Why are we doing it? Where is Christ in it? We need to ask that question. Otherwise it becomes just a rule, just a, an activity. It could lead us to thinking we can be saved by our works we do. These Gnostics had lots of rules. In verse 16, they had rules about what you eat and drink, observing religious festivals, new moons, even the Sabbath day. They sort of said, you know, you have to have this day as a Sabbath day or that day as a Sabbath day. You have to do these things and that things. In the end, the Sabbath day, which was supposed to be a day of rest, became a real stressful day because you had to... Oh, all the rules. How far am I allowed to walk? What am I allowed to eat? What am I allowed to wear? It's all about making sure you don't break the rules. So it's a really stressful day. And it's not supposed to be like that at all. And verse 18, they were boasting about their spiritual experiences, all puffed up with pride. They believed they had these heightened spiritual experiences that even transported them into heaven or someplace to meet with God. And they, in the end, they were saying, we're superior to you. You're giving the feeling that you're inferior because we've got something you haven't got and you need it and we're better than you. That's what they were saying. There's no unity in Christ there together, is there? No all being equal. Some are now superior and some are inferior. That's not what the Bible says about followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 21 says the rules appear to be wise, but they're self-imposed. They're a false humility. They're not really humbling the person because inside the person's all puffed up with pride. The focus is on look at me, aren't I great? Not look at Christ at all, but look at me. And they have no value in restraining people, in helping people to grow into maturity in Christ. 
Uh, they even the, they said some really harsh practices, and you might see some of their movies where people used to whip themselves and starve themselves and punish themselves because they, they did things wrong and, and hoping that would make them a stronger person, a better person. It didn't. It just made them hungry and sick and weak and stuff. Because Christ wasn't in it. Christ is not in it. Therefore, it's worthless. So these things may sound good, but are they? And in the end, you need to ask, where is Christ? And if he's not there, no. They have nothing to do with it. The opposite comes in verse 9. The opposite he's going to say about Christ, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells, dwells or lives in bodily form. Jesus is God made man, fully God, fully man. And it's challenging groups like today. The Jehovah Witnesses don't agree with that. They say, no, Jesus was a man, he wasn't God, and, and he was a very good man, a spiritual man, but he wasn't God. And the Holy Spirit came on him, but left him, and, and he wasn't God. And they, they struggle with that. In the end, they all struggle with God dying on the cross. They can't get their head around that, so they have to deny that Jesus is God if they're going to go that way. Jesus was God. He was God who came to live among us, and God who died on the cross. And look at verse 10. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Fullness in Christ. You've been given it. You haven't earned it. You've been given it. You'll never earn it. You are given it by the grace of God. The Gnostics are saying it's deficient. You need more. And Paul's saying you don't need any more. You've got fullness in Christ. Because he says in verse 11, you know, in Christ you put off the sinful nature. And in verse 12 and 13, you're resurrected to a, uh, from a spiritual death to a new life with God. You've got forgiveness in verse 13. You're delivered from the legalistic requirements to earn your way to heaven in verse 14 because you can't do that. And from evil beings in verse 15, you've got fullness of life in Christ. You don't need any more. All the treasures are there for Christians in Christ. Nothing else needs to be done or added. And this answer cuts to the very core of the false teacher's arguments. Paul is, and Paul's not denying the place of experience. In fact, you know, he, wants us, he said you've got to live out your life. You've got to live as a follower of Jesus. And live means to experience. But what he's saying is you can't appeal to experience and use that as a ground for authority. You can't put experience over the teaching of the Bible. In my experience, this has happened, therefore this must be what you do. Does it agree with the Bible? Is Christ there? If it's not, then don't do it. Christ is all you need. And how do you and I get more of Christ? We're not going to meet him. I'd love him to come in the door, but I don't think it's going to happen. When we meet Christ, when are we going to meet Christ next time? The day he comes back. It'll be the end, won't it? It'll be judgment day. When we meet Christ, that's it. So what about us? We don't have that experience of Christ. How can we have an experience of Christ? Do we have an experience of Christ in some mystical way, some vision, some dream? How do we experience Christ? Go back to the Emmaus Road. The day Jesus rose from the dead, the tomb was empty. Some disciples saw him. Other disciples, two disciples were walking to Emmaus, which is not far away from Jerusalem, out on a road in a sort of wilderness area, no one around, no people, no houses, no nothing. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Suddenly someone peers and is walking alongside them. Where did this guy come from? 
And, and in those days, they had uh, a, a sort of hood over them and a cloak thing, you know, like a picture of a monk sort of thing, that idea. Uh, if you've got a hoodie on, you can't see your face. I had two guys break into my house a few years ago. They had hoodies on. I grabbed one guy. I couldn't identify the other guy because he had a hoodie on. I couldn't see his face or only part of it, so I couldn't identify him. Hoodies are great to cover your face. So this guy is walking with him. He's got a hoodie on. It's cold weather. It's what they wear. He's walking along. They can't really see his face. And they're all so downcast. They're glum. When you're downcast and glum, where do you look? Down. You're walking along moping. Oh, Jesus is dead. What are we going to do? You're looking down. You're feeling really bad about life. You're not looking at someone's face. In fact, you don't want company. You're just too upset anyway. What happens? This is Jesus who's appeared, but they don't recognize him. He then starts to explain to them, beginning at Moses and through the prophets of the Old Testament, he explained about what was going to happen to him dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And when they finally recognized Jesus, he had appeared, disappeared from their sight. And then they said, what excited them about meeting with Jesus? Was it him or something else? And they said in verse 32, were not our hearts burning, burning within us? while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. What stood out to them wasn't seeing, recognising that's Jesus, but understanding God's plan, understanding why it all had to take place. That's what really excited them. And that can and should still excite us today. We can have a meeting with Jesus and a meeting understanding what God's plan is and why Jesus had to die and what it means to us. And that should really stir our emotions. As we have that knowledge in our mind, it should bring an emotional response and a wanting to live it out. A wanting to live it out in a way that we offer our thanksgiving to God. We want more and more of Jesus. We never can have enough. We want to learn about him, understand him, and we want to live for him and mix with others and talk about him and offer our thanks and praise verbally, but also by how we live. We want, to be, we want to be people who are captivated by Christ. We just can't get enough of Jesus. We're addicted to Jesus. And we want more and more and more. And never stop giving thanks. And living it out, living it out with that in our mind, living it out to the fullest. Going out there and enjoying life and living it for Jesus. But making sure he's always the focus. He's never allowed to drift off and become on the sidelines. He's already got to be in the centre of what we do. If we do that, we'll never go wrong. And if we do that, we're going to get the most out of life. We're going to have a, a peace of mind, a joy, a celebration, excitement, no matter what is happening. Let me pray. God, we thank you. For the writings of Paul to us, our world hasn't changed. There's so many distractions. There's people till, still teaching the things like the Gnostics teach or trying to diminish Christ and put our minds under other rules and regulations. And Father, we want to be people who experience Christ. We want to be people who have our, our hearts burning for Jesus like those disciples on the Emmaus Road. Help us to keep learning about Jesus, learning about your plan, learning why he had to die and what it means for us. And Lord, as we learn, give us a heart that burns with love and thankfulness and joy of being saved. And Lord, let that translate out into, into our living 
that people might see we're living lives for Jesus. We're in love with Jesus. We're just full of joy with Jesus. We just can't get enough of Jesus. And we want to share that good news any way we can about Jesus to people around us. Amen.